Thanks for tuning in to the Beginning Aquaponics Podcast, your source for learning everything you need to know about how to set up and operate a small-scale aquaponics system. We'll get started with this episode after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks. You're looking for a great organic soil additive that will bring the life back into your garden or your houseplants? Then look no further than the Green Grub Group and their Lazarus Soil Soil Additive. Lazarus Soil is 100% organic black soldier fly frass. Add it to your soil to give your plants the organic boost that they need. Find them on Facebook at Green Grub Group. That's Green, G-R-E-E-N, Grub, G-R-U-B, Group, G-R-O-U-P. Well, welcome back to the third episode of the Beginning Aquaponics Show. My name is Jacob Jones, and I, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, these podcasts are going to continue to come out as I make them. Basically, I'm a working man and do have other things to do uh, that I have to do, but I am putting time into this uh, to make sure that we still get the episodes out so that maybe people down the road can listen to them. Um, so I hope that you're still finding something of value in these podcasts and, uh, Anyways, so today we're going to get into a topic that's really, really important. Uh, we're going to talk about water quality, and we're going to get down into the science and the nitty-gritty of aquaponics and kind of the chemistry behind what's making your your plants grow and uh, what you have to do to keep those things healthy. Uh, it'll be a really good indicator, water quality, of the healthier fish and your plants as well as the healthier biofilter and the uh, bacteria that you need to keep the whole system running. And uh, this is the thing that you're going to monitor every day or at least every, maybe every couple days and really keep a close eye on and keep records of. So it'd be really good to go ahead, stick this in here early so you can get you kind of thinking about it and ready before you start designing your system and making sure that your system is appropriate for maintaining good water quality throughout the life of your system. So water quality is something that people really don't understand. Uh, when you come into it and it's a it's a really big topic there's a lot to learn a lot of subtopics within this topic that we're going to try to talk about today and uh, i'm going to try to keep it under an hour but essentially without water right there is no aquaponics obviously because it's in the name aqua but a lot of people think that water especially when it comes to fish is just something that you know fish need to swim around in or they need to breathe but really it's a lot more important than that um, every living thing, every living thing on the planet needs water, uh, plants, animals, bacteria, including ourselves, obviously. And the importance about water specifically to fish and plants as well. Uh, and in an aquaponic system, even more specifically is that water is there to transfer all of our minerals and nutrients and essential gases like oxygen to and from the fish and the plants. So you're not um gonna have bacteria grow uh without the water obviously they also grow in the water a little bit uh, not as much as they do on the surface but they have to have the water there and it's there to carry away all the fish waste and to get it away from the fish themselves so that they can continue to live so like i said water quality is a very essential topic to have a really basic understanding of what's going on and anybody that does aquariums will know how important the water quality is to the overall health of your system as well. So what am I exactly talking about when I'm talking about water quality? Well, water quality in our case specifically refers to the suitability of water 
for a particular purpose. And our particular purpose is growing fish and plants. So a water quality variable basically is any kind of physical, chemical, or biological property that influences the suitability of our water to grow our fish and our plants in. So we need to keep this in mind when we're water testing so that actually physically testing the water quality is arguably the most important thing that we can do to consistently ensure the health of our entire system. There's five big parameters that we're going to talk about today. Um, and remember that everything uh, fish and plant-wise has kind of a specific tolerance range for these parameters that they're going to uh, be optimized in. Uh, so those five main parameters that we need to worry about basically are dissolved oxygen, the pH, the temperature, uh, and the nitrogen, which means ammonia nitrate and nitrite, as well as alkalinity and hardness. Alkalinity and hardness are kind of thrown together. They're talking a lot, kind of a similar thing. So oxygen is the first of these that we're going to talk about. And this is a really, really important one. Not that all five of these aren't important, but oxygen is one of these that can make a really big difference in a really big hurry. Oxygen, obviously, is the central uh, part for every part of the system. It, I mean, everything has to have it to live. It's biologically required for respiration in plants, animals, and bacteria. So dissolved oxygen, specifically what we're talking about, is the amount of oxygen gas that's dissolved into the water. And usually that gets measured in parts per million or milligrams per liter. Either one is the same thing. Dissolved oxygen can change fairly quickly. And if it gets really low, your fish can die within a couple hours. But it's a really tricky thing uh, because dissolved oxygen can drop, your fish can die, and then the water somehow or another gets aerated, maybe it rains on it or something, and the dissolved oxygen comes back up before you ever know what happened. So, uh, for instance, all that can happen while you're gone for the day at work, and then you get home and see all your fish dead, but um, you go to check all your water quality variables and everything, including the dissolved oxygen, is fine. So it's important to have something kind of constantly adding dissolved oxygen back into the system to make sure that you don't get those periods of low oxygen. So in most of our small scale and beginning aquaponic systems, we do this with some kind of aerator. An aerator can be something as simple as a small air pump that you can get at Walmart uh, that pumps air through an air stone, or even just uh, water falling back into the system and splashing and aerating the water in that way. Uh, those are good ways of aerating um, cheaply. It's also real important to remember that the amount of oxygen that the water can dissolve is dependent upon the water temperature. As the temperature of the water increases, uh, that water can't dissolve as much oxygen in it. It's kind of the opposite of what you think. You know, usually when you're adding sugar to water, you want to make the water hot, but um, that same process makes it to where that, that water doesn't hold on to gases as well. So the warmer the water is, the less gas it can dissolve. Um, so that, that's really important to think about when you're choosing which fish you want to stock in your system, obviously. So if you have a fish that needs higher dissolved oxygen levels, say like a trout, then you're going to need to keep that water cool enough to dissolve that much oxygen into the water. Um, and that obviously can be difficult if you live in a warmer climate. Uh, so you need to kind of think about those dissolved oxygen requirements of the fish that you're going to choose to grow at that point. 
Two main methods to measure dissolved oxygen. We'll talk a little bit about those. Uh, the two methods are by using an electrochemical probe that can be kind of expensive. Uh, these these can kind of range in price from a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars, depending on what kind you get. And uh, there are a couple different types of probes, but the main two are uh, polar graphic, which requires some warm up time, but are a little bit less expensive. Uh, usually it takes about 15 minutes for those to warm up. And you have a galvanic probe, which can be used immediately when you turn it on but they're typically more expensive than a polarographic little newer technology. Uh, the second method is by using a colorimetric titration, kind of like you're measuring pH for a swimming pool or something similar. And uh, these can be bought from the major water quality test suppliers like Hawk or Lamont. Uh, the next important parameter that we're going to talk about is pH. pH is basically the concentration of hydrogen ions and OH ions in the water. So, to put it even more basic, it means how acidic or how alkaline or basic your water is. So something that a lot of people don't really think about as far as pH goes is that the pH scale is logarithmic. And what that means is basically something that has a pH of six, for example, is 10 times more acidic than something that has a pH of seven. And then something that has a pH of five is 10 times more acidic than a pH of six. So when you put that together, that means that something with a pH of five is about a hundred times more acidic than something with a pH of seven. So the lower the number gets or the higher the number gets, uh, you start to talk about getting a lot more acidic or a lot more basic a whole lot more quickly. So an important thing to know about pH is that pH above 7.5 starts to stress out your plants. They like things to be a little bit more acidic. Uh, your nitrifying bacteria start to stress out when the pH gets below 6, and your fish start to stretch, stress out when the pH gets outside of between about 6 and 8.5. And so remember, we're trying to get a nice balance between all three of our parts of the system. So a good balance for these averages, for example, would be a pH of between about 6.5 and 7, so everything's kind of in its happy range. Uh, another quick note about pH is that pH affects the toxicity of ammonia, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But essentially, the higher the pH gets, the more toxic your ammonia becomes because it's converted from ionized ammonia, which is a less toxic form, to unionized ammonia, which is more toxic to fish. Uh, and again, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But pH, typically measured using some kind of electronic meter, uh, which are fairly cheap or by using the colorimetric method. And that's another one that's really important for you to make sure that you're checking at least once a week. So on top of all that uh, about pH, it's also important to understand how pH interacts with other water quality parameters. Parameters, man, I can't talk today. pH is also affected by nitrification, which is the process that um, our bacteria are undergoing to oxidize our ammonia and make it less toxic. And it's also affected by uh, the stocking density of your fish. And this is because, well, the nitrification part is because that nitrite is actually a weakened form of nitric acid. So as more nitric acid or nitrite is added to the system by nitrification, the pH will naturally drop a bit. Um, as far as your stocking density goes, your pH is um, affected by having more fish in the system. Obviously, this is because fish are releasing carbon dioxide as they respire. And uh, when water and carbon dioxide combine, basically, 
they form carbonic acid, which also lowers the pH over time. So with a higher stocking density, you end up with more respiration, and that lowers your pH more. Uh, temperature also kind of plays into this because higher temperatures typically result in a higher respiration for fish, and that just speeds up the process. Uh, also, if your system's outside, you may also be growing some microalgae or phytoplankton kind of unintentionally. Uh, these organisms can have a direct effect on your pH as well, because as you're uh, during the day when the sun is high, these organisms are obviously photosynthetic and they'll produce oxygen and remove carbon dioxide from the water, which will uh, raise the pH during the day. And at night, there is no photosynthesis occurring, but these organisms are all still respiring. So it adds CO2 to the water and lowers the pH at night. Uh, in aquaponics, in part because of this, um, we typically try to discourage the growth of microalgae and phytoplankton, especially if the fish don't require them to feed on just because they add another level of complexity to maintain the system, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, as well as absorb the same nutrients that our plants need. So if you notice phytoplankton or macroalgae growing in your system and you don't want it there, you can discourage it by shading any water that's open to the light. So back on temperature, uh, temperature is kind of the next major parameter that we're going to talk about, talking about water quality. Uh, temperature obviously affects nearly every aspect of an aquaponic system. It's directly related to dissolved oxygen, the toxicity of ammonia, and the absorption of nutrients into plants. So when we're choosing our fish and our plants that we want to grow, we should make sure that we're matching the optimum growth temperatures of the fish and the plants and, and make sure that we want to grow cold fish and plants in the wintertime or if you have a cold water source and then grow warm fish and warm plants in the summertime, or if you have a warm water source. Temperature, obviously you monitor it with a thermometer of some sort, it can be digital or analog, uh, which can also be, you know, both of them can be really cheap. Uh, just have a look at Amazon. Uh, this should be monitored like as often as you can, pretty well constantly. Uh, we're talking about total nitrogen earlier. Nitrogen, we're talking about ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate. Uh, nitrogen is very important because uh, it's a part of all proteins. So if you remember back to your high school biology class, you may remember that acronym CHON, C-H-O-N. Well, that was to help you remember the major elements that make up all proteins. Uh, CHON stands for carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen. So fish feed obviously contains a lot of protein that the uh, fish need to survive and grow on. And the amount of protein in fish feed is usually listed on the feed as crude protein and it's typically anywhere between about 18 to 50%, depending on what you buy. And that amount of protein that you have in your feed is dependent upon the type of fish that you're growing. So when the fish eats that feed, the nitrogen in the protein uh, gets fixed into ammonia by the fish and then excreted through the gills. Uh, the ammonia then gets oxidized by nitrifying bacteria that live in the biofilter into nitrite. And then from nitrite into nitrate, which is the most accessible form of nitrogen that's available to plants. Uh, the three forms of nitrogen, we kind of collectively call them nitrogenous wastes, and all three of them are toxic to fish at certain concentrations. However, uh, ammonia and nitrate, or sorry, ammonia and nitrite are about 100 times more toxic to fish than nitrate is. So um, 
our bacteria do a really good job at removing ammonia and nitrite and um, converting it, oxidizing it to nitrate. And then obviously that's what our plants are after. Our plants take up the nitrate and use it to grow. And that in turn cleans the water to make it safe for fish. And that's kind of the aquaponic cycle, right? Um, so all three forms of nitrogenous waste can be used by fish, but nitrate by far the most available and the most safe. Um, so when you're measuring ammonia and nitrite, uh, they should be kept well below one milligram per liter in a mature system. Um, and usually in a mature system, you'll barely even notice that they're there on your tests. Uh, as I said before, ammonia can be really toxic to fish. Uh, in fact, tilapia and carp like goldfish uh, pretend or begin to show signs of ammonia poisoning as low as one milligram per liter. So that's pretty low. Uh, ammonia damages the central nervous system and the gills and is usually characterized by a loss of equilibrium, uh, impaired respiration, and eventually the fish will start to convulse. Uh, there are two forms of ammonia. Uh, we sort of touched on before. The first is ionized ammonia or ammonium, and the second is unionized ammonia. Unionized ammonia is the much more toxic form uh, than ionized ammonia, and it occurs at higher pH levels. This is because unionized ammonia can diffuse across the gills more easily, and then um, once it's inside the fish, it becomes ionized so that now it cannot diffuse back out of through the gills, so it ends up collecting inside the fish and becoming very toxic. Uh, most test kits, when you're testing for ammonia, measure total ammonia nitrogen, which is both the ionized and unionized ammonia together. And there are some mathematical formulas that you can uh, you can do that use you know the pH and temperature and things like that to determine how much is ionized or unionized, but it's easiest just to think of it all as toxic, um, just for, for simplicity. Uh, so too much ammonia can also be toxic to your nitrifying bacteria. I mean, obviously they eat it, but too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. It's even too, it's even a bad thing for humans to drink too much water. So, uh, think of it that way. Uh, as far as nitrite goes, nitrite is also pretty toxic to fish. Uh, you start to see problems in your fish, uh, as, at as low of a concentration as 0.25 milligrams per liter. Um, and nitrite can kill a fish fairly quickly, so you really have to keep an eye on the nitrite. Um, nitrite lowers the affinity of hemoglobin, basically, in your blood to bind oxygen. So your blood is no longer as good at carrying oxygen as it was before. So when this happens, the blood of the fish usually turns this kind of chocolate brown color. Uh, which is where it gets uh, its name brown blood disease in the aquaculture industry. Uh, because when you open up the gill flap on the fish, you can see that brown color in their gills. Uh, fish typically kind of act like they're oxygen deprived and uh, nitrite poisoning. Uh, you'll see them kind of piping at the top of the water like they're gulping air and they may seem kind of lethargic. So if you see those signs, uh, start looking at their gills. Uh, to determine whether it's an oxygen problem or if it's uh, a nitrogen problem. Uh, nitrate, obviously, is the much less toxic of the three forms of nitrogenous waste, and it's the end product and ultimately the goal of the biofilter and the nitrification process in aquaponics. 
Um, most fish can tolerate up to about 300 milligrams per liter of nitrate. Uh, however, when they get above about 250 milligrams per liter, uh, it starts to have a negative impact on our plants. When nitrates are that high, you'll see excessive vegetative growth um, and a hazardous accumulation of nitrate in the leaves of the plants, which becomes hazardous for human consumption. You know, we hear about nitrates all the time, things like hot dogs. Uh, so you want to try to avoid those high nitrate levels in your food here. Um, nitrates should typically be kept between about 5 and 150 milligrams per liter in an aquaponic system. And if it gets too high, you can either plant more plants to take that out or start exchanging some water to dilute it. Uh, water hardness and alkalinity are the last of the major parameters that we're going to talk about. We're going to kind of lump them together. There are two types of hardness. There's general hardness. You usually see that abbreviated as GH and carbonate hardness, which is the same thing as alkalinity. And that's usually abbreviated as KH. Uh, general hardness basically is just a measure of the amount of positive ions in the water. Uh, those positive ions, typically calcium, magnesium. Carbonate hardness or alkalinity um, is the measure of the pH buffering capacity of water. And general hardness is not typically a huge deal to aquaponics um, as long as it's kept above about 40 milligrams per liter that's because it kind of becomes a little bit of a source of calcium magnesium to plants and animals um, but carbonate hardness is much more important to measure and keep up with as you go alkalinity or carbonate hardness is basically the amount of carbonates and bicarbonates in the water um, these are measured in milligrams of calcium carbonate per liter Alkalinity acts basically as a buffer to the lowering of pH, and that's because the carbonate and bicarbonate bind to the H plus ions that are released by acids, and you know there's a little chemistry involved there. Um, but alkalinity is important to aquaponics because it really helps you avoid those rapid pH changes that can really affect the health of fish and plants and uh, bacteria. So a lot of times you'll find that if pH changes slowly, your organisms will handle it, you know, reasonably okay. Um, as compared to if your pH changes quickly, um, and they don't have the time to kind of adapt to it, it's usually a whole lot worse. So, um, this alkalinity is really important to make sure that we don't have those rapid changes in pH. And if your alkalinity gets too high, however, it can still be harmful because sometimes we need to manipulate that pH. Um, and so it's important to maintain an alkalinity between 60 and 120 milligrams per liter. And, uh, but make sure that you're not putting in so much that it brings your pH, pH up out of its optimum levels. There are a few other major components of water quality that aren't necessarily chemistry. One of these is something we've kind of touched on already, like algae. Um, so not only can algae affect our water chemistry like we talked about, but it can also do things like clog up drains, uh, block our filters, and cover up our roots to our plants. Obviously, these are all things that just require a lot more uh, maintenance and make it a more hands-on process that we def you know, usually we don't really want it to be that way. Uh, some fish, like I said, might benefit from eating it, but it's really still just a good idea to inhibit that algae growth. Again, you can do that by shading any water that's open to sunlight. Uh, try not to use herbicide or algicide chemicals, things like that, in an aquaponic system.
Uh, parasites and bacteria are another types of bugs, things like that, or other things that can be harmful in an aquaponic system. Uh, you know, parasites and, and things like that can attack fish and plants. Uh, but sometimes you see people using earthworms or redworms uh, to break down solid waste in a system that can help your water quality a lot. It helps to avoid clogging or collecting somewhere and encouraging the growth of, of malignant bacteria. But uh, some parasites and pests, obviously, and bad bacteria should also be watched out for. Uh, to avoid these, you need to do your best not to stress your fish out, um, which would leave them open to parasites and diseases. So make sure you provide plenty of oxygen and clean water to all parts of your system and make sure that you're giving your fish and plants a complete nutritious diet and remove any pests that you can see by hand. That's basically all you can do. If you feel or you begin to smell a smell that kind of smells like rotten eggs, it's a sign that you have sulfide producing bacteria in your system and that there's a place um, that's not getting well oxygenated and it's starting to collect a bunch of waste. So that rotten egg smell uh, comes from hydrogen sulfide, which is toxic to fish. And so to avoid that, just ensure that all parts of your system receive clean, well oxygenated water. Uh, so sometimes you have to add water back into your system. Uh, so the water that you do that with has to be good quality too. Uh, over time, you're going to lose a little bit of water due to you know plant usage and transpiration, uh, evaporation, splashing, things like that. So sometimes you're going to need to replace a little lost water. Uh, that new water needs to be tested for certain, you know, all the stuff we talked about earlier, plus a couple more to make sure that, you know, the water chemistry of the new water is still good for your system. Um, as far as your sources, when you're replacing water in your system, uh, like I said, that source can have a, a large impact on the water quality of your whole system. So if you're close to the coast, for example, uh, you need to be mindful of the salinity of the water that you're putting into your system because most plants don't tolerate sodium very well. Uh, so if you're talking about salinity, you can measure that with either a cheap electrical conductivity or TDS meter or a refractometer that uses sunlight to uh, show you how much salinity is in the water. The salinity uh, basically is too high if the electrical conductivity is above 1500 microsiemens per centimeter or if the total dissolved solids is above 0.8 parts per thousand. Some people like to use rainwater, and it's a, it's a great source of you know, free water or relatively cheap water if you're having to buy equipment for it. Um, they can collect it off their, their roof or things like that out of the backyard when it rains, obviously. Uh, you just have to make sure, because in, in some states in the United States, it's illegal to collect rainwater. So you just have to make sure that's legal where you live before you start doing it. Uh, rainwater usually has a neutral pH. Um, but it's also usually really low in carbonate and general hardness. So you're going to need to raise that a little bit by adding uh, calcium carbonate or uh, something else to, to bring that up. Uh, rainwater usually also has almost zero salinity, so it's good as far as that goes. But there are still a couple things to watch out for. And uh, especially if you live uh, in kind of more industrial parts of the world, you may have an issue with acid rain, uh, so check the pH before you put it in your system. Uh, if the rainwater is being collected off of your house or another you know, object with a large surface area, 
it may also have ran across some contaminants such as bird feces and could be infested with disease-causing bacteria like E. coli. Um, so just think about your rainwater may need to be treated for disease-causing bacteria before you add it back to the system. Um, so just make sure you follow all those instructions to a T. Uh, like I said, rainwater is really low cost and really sustainable source if it's legal where you are and available to you. So it's a, a good, a good way to get extra water. Uh, you can also add it to a system through a well or other groundwater system like a cistern. Uh, the water quality coming out of those systems usually largely depends on the material that's surrounding the cistern or the aquifer at, uh, that the groundwater is coming from. So if your area has lots of limestone, for example, your water may have a high hardness. Um, if this is the case, you may have to add small amounts of acid to reduce the alkalinity. Again, if you live near the coast, some of these aquifers can have some saltwater intrusion. So you'll need to check the salinity before adding it to your system. Tap water or municipal water can also be used to replace water that is lost in an aquaponic system. However, this water is usually uh, more often than not for sure treated with uh, chlorine or chloramines to remove pathogens. Uh, these chemicals are very toxic to fish and plants and bacteria and the water will have to be treated before you use it. Uh, it's, it's a fairly easy and inexpensive treatment, however, and there's a couple different methods you can use to do it. Um, the easiest and least expensive method is to just let the water sit for about 48 hours before you add it into a system. Um, it'll be even more effective if you can throw some kind of agitation in there, like an aerator or um, something that sits there and splashes the water. That'll just help that chlorine and chloramine gas off and make it safe for the fishing plants. You can also use a chemical treatment called sodium thiosulfate to remove the chlorine and chloramines from your system. Uh, it's typically pretty inexpensive chemical. And uh, usually what I just do is I go to an aquarium store or Walmart or something like that and buy uh, like the aquarium treatment because usually it's got a little aloe in it too, which really doesn't hurt anything. But it'll, uh, you know, that form of it will be a liquid and you just pour a few capfuls of it into the water and, and let it sit for a little bit. And then you can add it into the system. It's a, a lot faster to do it that way than it is to just let it sit. Um, but, you know, like I said, it's, it is a chemical treatment. So um, depending on how you feel about that, you may want to go with the other way. Uh, you could also run it through a charcoal filter, but that would be uh, more expensive for sure. As a, a good rule of thumb, you never want to replace more than about 10% of the water in your system without removing the chlorine first. Because, you know, obviously sometimes you need water really quickly. And like I said, you can replace up to about 10% of the water in the system and still probably be okay. But obviously best to go ahead and treat all that water before you add it back to the system. All the other parameters of water chemistry will vary depending on the tap water's natural source. Um, you know, most of our tap water comes from some kind of natural surface or groundwater. So you'll need to test it before you use it. You can also use filtered water in your system, but that's, it's really expensive process and it'll remove most of the minerals and metals that you'll have to add back to the system once you use it. There are some instances where you may need to lower your pH and you can do this using acid if you're really careful. Um, it can also reduce your alkalinity as the 
H plus ions use up the available alkalinity in the system. But you should only use acid if the water has a really high alkalinity and you can't replace it with enough low alkalinity water like rainwater. It's because um, you can sit there and add a lot of acid into the system with pretty much no change in pH. And then once the pH, uh, it, you'll, you'll see it suddenly drop as all the alkalinity in that water gets used up. So all the buffering capacity gets used up all at once and then just boom, the pH just drops really low. So uh, the best way to do this, if you have to, is to treat a supply of resupply water with acid. And then once it's at your desirable pH, you can really slowly add that water into the aquaponic system. So treat it separately from the system before you add it in. Uh, if this is done, just use food grade phosphoric acid because it's uh, also a good source of phosphorus for your plants and it's not toxic to your bacteria. Uh, make sure that you don't use citric acid because it's naturally antibacterial and will harm your biofilter if you use it. Uh, if you need to increase your pH, you can do that by increasing your alkalinity. Uh, it's the safest way to do it. You can use things like calcium carbonate or potassium carbonate. Um, there are also some natural sources of those such as crushed eggshells and seashells or coarse limestone grit or crushed chalk. Um, it could take a long time for your alkalinity to increase using those though. So basically you just want to put those items in some kind of water permeable mesh bag somewhere like in a sump or a media bed for a couple of weeks and just kind of let it dissolve over time and keep an eye on it. Uh, in aquaculture, a lot of times we'll use baking soda, which is sodium bicarbonate. Uh, yeah, just like regular old arm and hammer, uh, to raise alkalinity, um, and it works really well for that purpose. But in aquaponics, we don't want to use it because it increases the sodium, which is toxic to our plants. So if you want to raise your alkalinity, uh, try to stick to calcium or potassium-based buffers instead of sodium-based. Uh, water testing, like I said, is very, very important uh, so that you can keep up with all these parameters and make sure that the health of your system is good. Uh, most of these parameters, you'll be able to get away with testing once or twice a week, uh, but dissolved oxygen and temperature should be checked at least once per day because um, they can change really quickly, right? And they make a big difference in your fish health. If your system is mature, all the rest of the water quality parameters are typically fairly consistent on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, if you suspect that there's a problem based on the behavior of the fish, or the look of the plants, and the first thing you should do is just run the gamut of all the water quality tests that you have. Uh, you should monitor the health of your fish and plants daily to look for potential water quality issues. Um, if when you're buying a kit, those colorimetric water quality kits are typically fairly inexpensive and easy to find um, from some places like Hawk or Lamont or API. I think API, the little drop kits, are probably the most uh, popular, especially with beginning aquaponics folks. Uh, in a mature system, we should test pH, nitrate, alkalinity, dissolved oxygen, uh, ammonia, and nitrite, and temperature fairly often. Um, pH, nitrate, and the rest of your nitrogenous wastes and alkalinity you can test once or twice a week. Uh, but things like temperature and dissolved oxygen, you should really be testing at least once a day. Um, 
And it's something else that's really important too that a lot of people just don't do is you want to keep good logs on like maybe an Excel spreadsheet or some kind of dedicated notebook because a lot of times uh, issues with fish and plant health are the result of some kind of trend that you may not notice, you know, day to day. But when you go back through those logs, you can see, oh, well, this was happening here and this may have caused the problem. So make sure you keep good logs uh, somewhere safe and accessible to you. Well, that's kind of all we have for today uh, for the water quality discussion. Hopefully this kind of gives you a basic understanding of what is going on when we're talking about water quality and why it's really important. Uh, make sure to join us for the next episode. We're going to start talking about designing aquaponics and aquaponic systems uh, and the types that are good to use at home. Uh, remember, if you have any questions, to drop a voice memo uh, on the Anchor app or leave a comment or rating wherever it is that you're listening, if you're listening on Spotify, Google, or Apple. Uh, thanks again for listening, and I hope you guys have a great day.